Welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of the stories of Hunter S. Thompson. And I, as usual, I am your host, Christopher Tidmore, coming to you from Historic Magazine Street in New Orleans, joined by the literal guru of all things Hunter, our own Curtis Robinson, coming from Maine, I believe, today. Yes, yes, yes. I, I remain hunkered down on the coast of Maine, Christopher, and uh, uh, thanks for leading us in. Uh, we we uh, are headed into the month of May, and the first Saturday in May, of course, in uh, the, the world of Hunter Thompson is, uh, and it's late this year. I think it's as late as it can be because it's May 7th, and of course, the first Saturday in May is Kentucky Derby. So instead of May the 4th be with you, it's May the 7th cocktail be with you. May the 7th <laughs> yes. julep be with you. So yes, anyway. may the 4th be with you on the 7th. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, for those uh, tuning in from the, not that familiar perhaps with Hunter and perhaps with the Kentucky Derby, the, uh, uh, the Kentucky Derby piece Hunter Thompson wrote in 1970 Kentucky Derby. It was considered the first gonzo piece he wrote it for scanlon's magazine and it was published in uh, uh june of that year scanlon's monthly was uh, uh, a short but mighty magazine it, it, did, it didn't make it a lot of years but it packed a lot of wallop for uh, things like this it should be noted that it's considered the first gonzo piece for several reasons one is uh, and hunter and i talked about this piece all the time uh, because it was fascinating for him from a creative standpoint. But one of the things about it was it was a complete failure. He thought his entire career had ended, and he used a fancy piece of new technology at the time, the fax, the mojo wire, to send, um, which must have been horrifically expensive at the time. It by was, the way. Actually, well, I, I know this only because I, I, I've read the background of um, how much it cost to fax a piece to Rolling Stone um, slightly after this. It took five minutes to get one page through, and it cost $30 a page. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle, yeah. It was a miracle, and and apparently Hunter named it the Mojo Wire. And it, um, what he liked about it was you could compress the time that the editors had to react what he loved about that era is they would hold space for his story and he would push the deadline and push the deadline. And then he could send this at the very last possible mechanical moment. And, and they had no real ability to push back because they had reserved the space. I have been in that situation and he could not have been more correct. It's kind of the desperation, you know, now I'll, uh, and for many years I've sent my editors um, pieces and the, the word processor and email makes things much easier for them to very quickly eviscerate your entire message. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Back, at, back in the days of typesetting, uh, one had more leeway and uh, could, could count on deadlines to do that. But, but he, he had not uh, written his piece. He, we would say, faxed it in. He, he sent it by Mojo Wire. And uh, this would have been a horrible setback. Scanlon's was run by Warren Hinkle at the time, and Warren Hinkle uh, is the stuff of legend, and uh, one would not want to get on his bad side. But uh, it would have been a big setback. But then they pieced it together from his notes, loved it, ran it. Um, and, of course, you know, it, it ran with the wonderful artwork. It was the first time he worked with Ralph Steadman. 
Really? And uh, most people don't know. Most people think it was uh, uh, Vegas that and that Stedman went to Vegas. That's not true. Stedman, Stedman did those uh, uh, drawings of Vegas, uh, not from from having gone, but but because he's Ralph Stedman. <laughs> and uh, so so this they worked together. They went. Uh, I have I looked it up. Uh, he he describes Hunter as. An impressive head chiseled from one piece of bone, and the top part was covered down to his eyes by a floppy brimmed sun hat. His <laughs> top half, his top half was draped in a loose-fitting hunting jacket of multicolored patchwork. He wore seersucker blue pants. Uh, and then he says, uh, <laughs> "He says, damn near six foot six of solid bone and meat, holding a beaten-up leather bag across his knee." And a loaded cigarette lighter holder between the arthritic fingers of his other hand. Uh, I kind of would have put, pushed back at the time that that uh, uh, his fingers were not yet arthritic. But other than that, I think that's a pretty good. That's a, that's a but, uh, that's a wonderful word picture of Hunter throughout his life, but particularly when he's creating it, the art form that he would be known for. Um, and actually, it's here's the thing, Curtis. I got to say something. The definition, even amongst Hunter fans, the definition of Gonzo, which is very specific, has taken on so many meanings and not the original one the Hunter meant, which was to put himself into the story, to, to see himself, see the story through his own perspectives. Um, it, it's, and, and, and everything he wrote about it, people have basically associated Gonzo journalism with, you know, well, getting drunk, getting stoned and doing everything possible, which admittedly was Hunter, but not necessarily the definition of the word. Well, I get, I, I'm a, I've been on academic panels where I've been asked, uh, why isn't it just new journalism? Uh, he was often lumped in with uh, Tom Wolfe and the new journalism. And if so, this, this piece would have been one of the first real new journalism kind of pieces. And I, and I would, I would make this distinction the difference is, is observer versus participant. Uh, uh, Tom Wolfe went to San Francisco, wrote about the acid culture and the um, and wrote about it well. I remember that that opening where he's riding in the back of the pickup truck with some people on acid. He went out and interviewed and wrote well about the people who took acid. Hunter went out and took the acid, <laughs> and and it was a difference about writing about something and from it. He didn't go out and interview the Hells Angels. He rode with the Hells Angels. And I think that that participatory part is what people often miss. Uh, the, the ability to be, to, to report the story. Uh, Hunter embedded himself with the story before we knew what embedded meant. <laughs> and I love that. And, and, it, and, and it all, you know, I wouldn't say it all started with the Derby, but it was there. The name actually came from a Boston Globe editor, Bill Bill Cardoza, and he uh, the story itself was not widely read. Scanlon's, I don't think, was particularly widely read, but it, it cast a a long shadow in the journalism community. And it was Cardozo who said that that story is pure Gonzo, and Hunter picked it up and said, "Well, I, well, I guess that's what I do. It's Gonzo. I think he liked the word. It's a great word." And it was, uh, and, and and Gonzo journalism was was pretty much born. But you know, Hunter, it could be said that 
that the the thing that Kerouac said about first thought, best thought. Uh, Hunter Hunter's notes were some of the best writing I've ever read of his. But that's what this story was. This story sort of came from his notes. Uh, I think it was fortunate to have Ralph Stedman's drawings because uh, they they gave a visual fuel to 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 that. I I don't know about you. You know, I I think I probably first read the Derby piece if I, I probably in uh, the Great Shark Hunt, which I don't think that even came out until '79. Yeah, I mean that's so, so it's in Shark Hunt and. It's amazing. It's it's a piece, even though chronologically it is, it's a piece that most, if a Hunter fan has read it, they've read it really late after reading a whole bunch of other uh, Hunter stuff. And that's kind of tragic in a way. It explains so much. Well, it's, it should have a, you know, there should probably, you know, if you don't know it's the Genesis, you know, I always think about uh, the great shark hunt as uh, the equivalent today of, you know, when you've not seen a series, as I famously, I, I had not seen maybe an episode, but I had not seen Breaking Bad until the pandemic hit. So I, I watched all of Breaking Bad on a binge. <laughs> and no one had told me it was that good. And so I would just watch it until my eyes bled onto my shirt. And then I knew that it was time to turn it off for a minute. But it was it was so good. But I think I look back on Shark Hunter, that was, you know, you could binge Hunter Thompson. You could read as many pages as your eyes could stand because that is a monster book. You know, it's uh, it's, it's clearly written by someone who didn't expect to do a second anthology. <laughs> I was I was thinking Shark Hunter is, is Hunter's uh, Walt Whitman's leave, Leaves of Grass. If he could have keep rewriting that anthology, he probably would have. Um, <laughs> I, well, some would say he did. <laughs> um, Curtis Robinson, I got to say that uh, we're speaking about location and how it influences Hunter's um, journalism and his perspectives. Well, I mean, this show starts with the song Old Kentucky Home, usually, and um, this, the Kentucky Derby is the quintessential moment in uh in Kentucky in the whole year. I mean it's it it's where everything comes together. And that's kind of reflected. He's trying to reflect that in the story of this different cultural pushes coming through and the kind of weirdness of the whole day. Well that's kind of true. And and you know, Hunter of course grew up in Louisville. He's from Louisville. Um and I and I think that that home field advantage must have must have spoken to him. I mean he grew up with that I grew up in Kentucky, but I grew up on the other side of the state. So it wasn't, it doesn't, it, it's not a statewide thing in the way that Mardi Gras doesn't reach into all of Louisiana. But the, um, well, I should say New Orleans Mardi Gras doesn't reach into all of, all of Louisiana. Yeah. So to, to me, you know, I can, you know, my, the Kentucky Derby to me is not the Kentucky Derby of the box seats. My Kentucky Derby was the Kentucky Derby of, college kid in the infield and the infield at the Kentucky Derby is, I mean, it, it is hyped up in those days in the, in the eighties. I think my last trip there was probably 81, I think 81 when Pleasant Colony won the horse from Virginia, but the, um, I won a fortune. That's what I remember. I remember winning a fortune. I had that horse to win. I loaded up, I had a premonition and, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that will get you in so much trouble. <laughs> well, actually, I always, I always tell people that it's not when you – if you lose a lot at the track to start with early, that's probably a good thing. 
then you have your first big win. And it confuses you because you think, oh, God, I did this. I can do it again. It, it's like the, f- the first perfect high from drugs. It's like, wow, I really want that again. And you sort of chase it over and over and over and over to no avail until you're pretty much constant. Well, that, 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 that wonderful feeling of premonition. And then when it's wrong, you wonder, you wonder why God hates you now. And, uh, but the, you know, the thing I loved about the Derby piece, uh, and the, one of the reasons it was always fun to talk to Hunter about that piece was, is, is yeah, but, but I talked, I would talk to him a lot and I would try to equate that, uh, the notes part of it, the, the, in the moment parts of it. And I think then when he tries to define Gonzo later, where he says, you know, the, the reporter acts like a camera recording and, and to a degree interpreting what's right in front of them in real time. And you've got to wonder just, just what he would have done with, uh, you know, today's technology and the ability to do that in ways that, that you didn't do before. But I think that the Derby really put him on, you know, that path. When you look at the Derby in 70 and, of course, uh, Vegas in 72, you know, now you're talking. Now you've got a, a, a something that I think that, that can stand as a genre unto its own, uh, sadly. It, it, it is not easy to intimidate. It's not easy to imitate. And God knows, God knows we've all tried. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, it's not also easy to imitate the Mona Lisa either, you know, but artists try their entire career. Um, and, and that's what I think about this piece. It, it, it comes into, there are certain, there are certain pieces that not only sort of hark in a career, there's one time where emotion and prose and poetry of the moment and the realness of the moment come together in a relatively short space. Usually that happens in a passage in a novel. This came together in one, what is essentially an essay about a place. Well, yeah, it, and it is. And, and, it's a story about desperation and a certain kind of horrific failure. And, and it was born then of that, uh, and his, his feelings about the Derby. I mean, he's, he wrote about Louisville sparingly, but he did write about Louisville. The best thing he wrote about Louisville was probably, it was also in shark hunt. It was called a, uh, a Northern, a Southern city with Northern problems. Maybe I'm getting that exactly wrong a northern city with southern problems. But it talked about the fact that Louisville was not entirely southern, not entirely northern, and, and the different things there. Uh, Louisville now, uh, we've both been fairly recently. I, I, I think I went once right at the first of the, just before the pandemic. I was actually it was during just the fans. pandemic. Yeah, it's, a, it's... It's, it's such, a, such a wonderful city. And, and you know, now it embraced uh, Hunter. I don't, I don't know that it always did. Hunter Hunter is not the kind of person easily embraced by the local chamber of commerce. Uh, the, the well, they never. They first. never. They, I was. Uh, uh, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, last week, and um, you know the Wolf's Look Homeward Angel is Asheville for those that don't know, and it's a thinly veiled autobiographical story. And very thin. Very thinly, to the point where they threatened if he were, would return to Asheville for the next 40 years, he would be born, uh, how did they put it, burned, drawn, quartered, and hung in the center of town. That never really happened to Hunter. It was admittedly a little later, but uh, it was, um, 
it, 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 <laughs> there, there was there were people in Louisville like, oh my god. Um, maybe that's why he yes. didn't write that often about Louisville. <laughs> yes, 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 that 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 could be. But it, uh, uh, but the der- the Derby is uh, uh, upcoming. We're going to post this in advance uh, of the Derby, so I hope people who uh, uh, have a chance to look at it remember it always comes up. It always it always comes up, and you got to wonder about how many people wrote about the Derby that year. And uh, you know, and Hunter always considered himself. You know, he started as a sports writer. He uh, his first job was at an Air Force base in Florida, where he became uh, he wrote about uh, football for the uh, the base newspaper. And that sort of started him on his way. And then, of course, he ended up doing the Hey Rube column at uh, ESPN. So, you know, he, he he used to say, you know, I started as a sports writer. looks like I'm going to end as a sports writer. But, uh, you know, you've got to wonder if, um, you know, maybe we, we should have more and more sports writing that, that's like the, the, the Kentucky Derby. I mean, although I would say, you know, you can say the same thing about the Super Bowl. His Super Bowl stories defined what the Super Bowl is. Uh, for me, I don't know why people think they're negative. I love them. Well, I mean, I think it's in sports writing, you're, the myth that you have to be totally objective is not exactly always enforced in sports writing, but also the emotional intensity of moral correctness is not either. So you can actually write about the events uh, sports writers are, are attitudinally are attitudinally suited to write about what's going on much more actively and with much less philosophical bs for lack of a better term than you than political reporters are and i, I think you know i'm i am not a sports writer uh and but i i've respected sports writers because they look at the game and sometimes political reporters, the best political reporters I've ever known, are looking at the game and then looking at everything that goes into the game. The worst political reporters I've ever known are basically those who find the grand, the grand eloquent grandioseness of the nonsense of the game. Well, I mean, I myself started as a sports writer at my <laughs> county paper in Kentucky, and I and I used to tell everyone that uh, uh, the city reporter is a good reporter. Uh, the political reporter is a reporter. Uh, why are you people all called reporter and only the people over here in sports are called writers? Well, it's talent versus lack of talent. <laughs> oh, but that is something. <laughs> and, 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 and that would get argued both ways in, in most <laughs> newsrooms. They they were like, uh, there's a, oh, there's a reason for that. It's uh, – <laughs> But but you know it was you look at you look at the Derby. It's such a, a an iconic cultural event. It's going to be you got to believe it's just going to be raucous this year, coming out of the pandemic. If if we are coming out of the pandemic, I have been fooled before. <laughs> well, it was you like know? well, there will be a gathering at the at, at Churchill. There will be um, a, a people without masks drinking mint juleps, watching horses go by, densely packed together. So at least it might be a super spreader event, but it will happen. Um, well, yeah. that's true. But you know, uh, uh, if but I, I guess that that that's the world we live in now. But I, I think, it was interesting. Uh, but, but I want uh, I want to because I wanted the observation, but I wanted to ask you one question. And this is what I was trying to figure out when when you brought up this topic for us to discuss here, hunter gatherers. I was trying to figure out how many 
sporting events are televised um, because when he wrote this, now at at the time we really weren't having television. I think the first, either the first national championship was was actively televised uh, live at across the country. If he was, but really the Kentucky Derby is one of the few national sporting events that, regardless of where you are, regardless where you live, regardless of whether you're an extreme horse fan, you watch or you might go to a party to watch. We don't have, we have parties, you know, a, a championship college team might have a party because their team is in the national championship, but you don't, you don't generally have this party. You'll have a Super Bowl party, regardless of who's playing, and you'll have a Kentucky Derby party, but there's not a lot of other things where you have a gathering of people who might not otherwise be interested in the topic. And I think that's one of the reasons why this essay re- resonates. It's the Kentucky Derby is a unique event. I think, I think you're right. I think, I think it is a unique event. It's uh, a unique event. It's uh, certainly, you know, when people who aren't into football have to endure an entire football game, at least if you're not into horse racing, you have to endure a couple of minutes. So, so that's over. Where's my hat? <laughs> uh, we, we used to do that. You know, the, um, and I think, I think as a, as a creative endeavor, when, when Hunter would look back on it, I, I think that the Kentucky Derby was, was, you know, clearly the precursor to what we got from Vegas and and a, and a few of the other really great pieces along that era, because I think it really opened up the idea of uh, of riding closer to his notes and, and closer to himself than perhaps he had done before, and you know, and I, I think that's that's good. But but you you know when you think about it though, he had written this. And he wrote Vegas, and then he went into Campaign Trail 72, which you, you and I are discussing on a, on a different podcast series. Same podcast, different series. We'll subdivide more than Europe before this is over. But I think, I think as a creative endeavor, I think this was really a, a breakthrough for him. And as I used to tell him all the time, well, at least you had notes to send. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no, you know, that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and it, it, the most feared uh, words, ladies and gentlemen, that that a reporter will hear most of the time is an editor saying, "Okay, you got your story. Let me see your notes," because <laughs> reporters <laughs> can sometimes not. Yeah. Uh, how shall I put this politely? Uh, very diligent in, in keeping detailed notes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Chicken well, scratch in the back you know, of a, a newspaper. Anyway. I think it was my third job when someone much older and wiser than me took took me aside and said, "Look, if you if you're going to make up a name for a source, always make it a woman because when they can't find her in the phone book, they'll just think her phone's listed under her husband's name." And I'm like, "That's not the advice I expected. <laughs> that's that's not the advice I expected from uh, professionals." But yet, there you go. You know, as uh, as Hunter would say, the good with the bad. Well, I've got to tell you, as I, we, we close out this edition of Hunter Gatherers, Curtis Robinson, I have the blender set to puree my ice. I've got the, the, the fresh mint ready for the juleps and a toast to Hunter and the dawn of gonzo journalism. Well, yes. Thank you. And, and I, I, I will join you. And if you uh, uh, maybe we'll Facebook. 
That would be fun. And next week's oh, edition. Oh, I'm sorry. FaceTime. Yeah, FaceTime. Facebook, I Facebook. don't do. Yeah, I was like those. And speaking <laughs> and, and speaking of interesting additions, uh, not only next week do we have a new podcast coming out with the two of us, not that there isn't enough of these um, on Spotify and every other platform, but we're actually doing another Hunter Gatherers podcast with an old Hunter crony, if I'm not mistaken, next week in Washington, D.C. together. Yes, we will. We will be welcoming uh, a returning champion, Matt Mosley, uh, the the author and man about town of Denver, and he's going to be discussing his newest film. Uh, Matt, of course, in addition to being an endurance lunch uh, athlete, uh, is a long-distance swimmer. It's hard to fit both of those into anyone's life. Uh, actually, Matt sort of invented endurance lunching in honor of uh, Christopher Hitchens. But that's a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> so yes, we, we will be welcoming a uh, returning champion, Matt Mosley, from the uh, from an American Rivers reception in uh, the nation's capital. So that's as much teaser as I've done in a long time. And uh, folks, we'll see you next week here for yet another edition of Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. <laughs> <laughs>